You're listening to a Sun Life podcast. We pray that you be blessed by the teaching of God's word. For more information, visit sunlife.org.au. Enjoy the sermon. Thanks, um, Pastor Bin, for kind, your kind words. And i um, really glad to be here with everyone online. And um, I hope where you are at in your living room or maybe you're walking the dog, uh, whatever you're doing, I'm glad that you're tuning in this morning. And this morning, we want to really go through uh, the Word of God together in Joel chapter 3, verse 1 to 17. Now, I will not be reading that passage, uh, but I want us to actually read that passage after this, um, go back and explore it, uh, read it again and again. Um, but I want to really go through uh, this morning, and you will see that it, you will follow along, and you will, I will break down everything for you, so it's all great, okay? So don't panic, it's all good. Now, this morning, I wanna, uh, the title of my sermon is God is our judge. God is our judge. Now, <clears throat> I remember growing up in my teens, and watching Judge Judy on TV. I'm sure you can recall the courtroom scene, uh, the plaintiff and the defendants coming out to state their claim. Uh, They each presented their um, case before the judge, and typical Judge Judy fashion, she will stare them down with eyes that resemble Superman's X-ray vision, almost as if it's staring deep down into the darkest secrets of your soul, scrutinizing everything that you're saying. Remember those, those eyes? <laughs> then at the end of the case, of each case, she issues a verdict. I seldom feel Judge Judy was wrong in her judgment. In fact, most of the time, I think they were fair and just. Um, but I do think some of the cases presented uh, were so ridiculous that they were bordering on the similarities of uh, dealing with two bickering kids, right? Um, but in this chapter, we are going to see God acting as a judge, executing justice righteously and sovereignly. Now, in order to understand chapter 3, I'm just going to quickly go through a macro view of the book of Joel, alright? There are four scenes and one um, turning point. So, scene 1, remember in chapters 1, we talk about the locusts coming, devouring everything. We know that judgment is imminent, right? Scene 2, we talk about the army climbing up the walls and... um, and like literally destroying everything in its path. And it says, judge, and scene two is judgment is swift, right? God's judgment is swift. And then we come to the turning point where Joel calls everyone to repent. He says, hey guys, repent and, and then um, return to God. And then scene three, we see, and what Pastor uh, Bean preached last week, um, that God restores. He restores this new land, new wine, new oil. The Spirit is being poured out. And then now we are in scene four. God who judges. Now this time round, we will see God delivering the payback to the rest of the nations for invading Judah and Jerusalem. Now here in chapter 3, God rises as a judge to the surrounding nations and He begins to list the actions and war crimes they did against Judah and Jerusalem. To see God as a judge for all of us is often not accepted and not preached, often not mentioned at all. Because we don't want to be judged. Uh, We prefer to see God as loving, kind, compassionate, um, and gracious, but definitely not a judge. Because it's scary to be the presence of God uh, who will actually judge whether you're innocent or guilty, right? And yet in the news, yet in society today, we want to make sure that our judge um, in the courts do the right thing. 
we, you know, we want them to let the innocent free. We want the guilty to be punished. We cringe when we see a criminal walk free. And then we mourn at the fact that, when, that the, innocents, the innocent are charged. And we call it injustice. We want our human judges to be wise, to consider the safety and the well-being of the community and the nation. And that is precisely why we need God as our judge. In fact, He's not only a judge, but a righteous and sovereign one. All right, he's not one, he is one that upholds justice. He's not corrupt. He's wise and he is good. And today, there are two things that I want to bring about. Firstly, God is our righteous judge. Secondly, God is our sovereign judge. First point, God is a righteous judge. Let's go to Joel chapter 3, verse 2. He says this, I will also gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them. There, on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, they have divided my land. Notice the play of words here, Valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, there's no such literal place. Um, it's a very figurative uh, and, and a meaning that symbolizes the place where God will meet with the nations and He will be the judge there. Jehoshaphat, Jehovah, uh, comes from the word, uh, Jehovah it means God. Shaphat means judge. So he's telling them, hey, come to this place. That's where I'm going to judge you. Um, in Joel chapter 1, we see God judging the nations of Judah. In Joel chapter 3 now, we see God turning his judgment towards the atrocities and the war crimes that were done to the people of Judah. These were done by the surrounding nations. Why? Because war crimes, atrocities, needs to be judged. Right? So here is what we know the atrocities they have done. All right? If you go to chapter, uh, verse 2 and verse 3, it says this, Whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people. They have given a boy as a payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Now, they scattered the people of God. They divided the land. They cast lots for my people, meaning to say they literally treat God's people like things to be sold in the marketplace. And number four, they treat the people of God like they're worth nothing. Notice the words, a boy as a payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Well, you might be asking, no, that's unfair. I mean, God is kind and loving. Why is He judging the surrounding nations? They may not know anything, right? Aren't they humans too? Don't they deserve a chance? But when it comes to God's judgment, Sometimes people will say they believe in a God who is not judgmental. Now, that sounds good. But here is what they are say, really saying. I believe in a God who doesn't care about right and wrong. To put it more bluntly, they are saying they believe in a God they just made up in their heads. And if really God is loving, then God also will be just and will judge righteously. Someone writes, if someone commits a crime in our society, they can't say to a judge in the courtroom, hey, but your honour, just before I marked that person, I helped an old lady cross the road. The judge might think to himself, well, that's nice, but he wouldn't let the crime go unpunished, right? To do that will betray his position as a judge. And likewise, God sees sin and disobedience, actions that were wrong against him, and he has to act accordingly. And that's why it is in our discipleship that it is imperative that while we know that God is kind, He's merciful, He's gracious, He's loving, but He also has to uphold the moral standards He set. Crimes, evil, has to be dealt with. Crimes will have to face its consequences. Otherwise, God is corrupt 
and he shows favoritism. Right? So even in the book of Psalms, the psalmist encourages everyone to rejoice and to be glad. Why? Because judge the, because God judges righteously. Psalm 67 verse 3 says this, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the nations praise you. Lord, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously. Right? And it's a wonderful thing that God judges righteously. Now you may ask Daryl, okay, this is all great. This is all good. Now what has it got to do with me? Well, have you ever been mis misjudged? Have you ever been misunderstood? Have you ever been wrongly accused by someone before? Um, have you been put in a position where you did nothing but was blamed for everything? This morning, I want to tell you that God is your righteous judge. You can go to Him. You can pray to Him. You can tell Him everything. I want to illustrate this with, <laughs> for you. Uh, when I was serving as a youth pastor, um, there was a youth who never really likes me. Uh, her claims was that I don't care enough for her. Um, I was abrasive. She said I was abrasive with my words and I was very strict. So I was taken aback by her comments because, you know, I was only starting out as a youth pastor. I was trying to love everybody as much as I can um, and care for them as much as I can. And then the painful part is, you know, when you have done all that and someone turns around and says, you don't care for me at all. Parents of teenagers, you maybe understand what I'm going through, right? Um, you may have faced something similar. And that night after youth, I, was, I felt horrible. Um, I, I felt wrongly accused. But that night, I took my case to God and I said, God, that was unfair. I did my best. And I left it there knowing that God will take care of it. He is my judge. He is my righteous judge. A week later, that same youth came back to the youth service, which was, whew, Thank God she came back, even though I may not be that good to her as a pastor. Um, she walked straight up to me. Out of nowhere, she just walked straight up to me. She apologised for her comments and gave me a hug. I did nothing. I just left my case to God. I was stunned and lost for words. You see, when God judges righteously, sometimes He corrects a misjudgment or a misunderstanding. And how He does it is by working His way to the other person's hearts and actions. And sometimes it may also be our own hearts and our own actions as well. He knows what is right and what is wrong. Alright? Now, point number two. God is a sovereign judge. Now, we know that the judges have authority to uphold law. Our judges in society have authority to uphold law, authorize major social policies and decisions. And we can't say they are supreme and all-powerful. Right? We can't. They have authority, but... In, its, in them themselves, they are not sovereign. They're not all supreme and all powerful. Now, I want to paint us a context before we understand this. In Joel chapter 3, verse 5, it says this, Because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my prized possessions. This is very crucial to the people of the Near Eastern Asian culture. Why? The silver and gold are mainly the items used for worship in the temple of God. They are. They are articles of silver and gold, and they use, the priests use that to serve things, all right? To serve, um, to serve God. And in the book of Ezra, after the people of God returned to their land and rebuilt the temple after being in exile for so many years, writes this, Also let the gold and silver articles off the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple which is in Jerusalem, be brought back to Babylon, be restored, taken back to the temple which is in Jerusalem, 
each to its place and deposit them in the house of God. This gold and silver were used in the temple of Jerusalem. The surrounding nations came in. We know that the Babylonian Empire invaded Judah and took everything. They raised the temple to the ground. They took everything, took all the gold and silver. And we know that, that they put it in their own temples. Now, why is this important? In the Near Eastern Asian, Asian ancient culture, right? The battle won is not measured by how many men or chariot you've got. All right? It's not. It's how big your God is. If you win, it represents that your God is bigger than mine. So when invading nations took the articles of gold and silver and bring them from another temple to theirs, it literally means the God of Judah and God of Israel have lost and now serves the dominating nation's gods whom they worship. Now you may ask, well, where do you get this information from? Well, Vos Seminary. <laughs> I had a Hebrew lecturer, a Jewish lecturer that told me that. And it is true. It is also evident if you study Old Testament survey. Now, you can imagine the thought on every Israelite. My temple has been raised, items of worship gone, my land is gone, and now my God has lost. There is a lot at stake here for God to prove Himself as having supreme power and authority. Or, does He really need to prove it? So in the next few verses, I'm going to show you that our God is a sovereign judge. Right? Sovereign, mean, sovereign means all-powerful, all, with all authority. Okay? Now, there are three things that shows us from this passage God is a sovereign judge. The first is he has, a, he has the final say. The second, He takes His rightful place. And the third, um, He protects His people from oppression. Okay? So the first one, He has the final say. Now, we know that God has not lost. In fact, he has the final say in this. God is going to deliver some serious payback. If you look at this in verse 6, also the people and the people of the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks, that you may remove them far from their borders, right? So that's what they did. Then in verse 7 he says this: Behold, look now. I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them and will return your retaliation upon your own head. He says, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a people far off. For the Lord has spoken. I put that there, for the Lord has spoken. Because probably he has remained, they think he has remained silent. But now he has spoken. Imagine this with me. You are one of the nations that attacked Jerusalem and Judah and you tasted victory, you thought you won, you've enjoyed the spoils of war, you think that your nation is all-powerful now, you're the most powerful ruler, nothing can destroy you. And all of a sudden, you hear from a prophet telling you that God is going to deliver the payback. And you're thinking, wait, wait, wait hold on a second. What, now God is speaking through a, a prophet? I mean, not, what? Now that God is saying that um, he will return the retaliation to our own heads and he will sell our sons and daughters. Um, uh, wait a minute. Um, we, won the war. we won the war, right? We tasted that victory, right? These Israelites, was, the people were scattered, right? Their God has been silenced, right? The articles of gold and silver were in our temple, right? And I can imagine the panic that they're having right now after hearing these words. The ruler must be shaking. 
And for the Lord has spoken, He has never remained silent. He was merely waiting for the right time to judge. The right time. He has the final say, the final victory, the final decision. Number two, He takes His rightful seat, right? He not only has a final say, God calls all the nations to bring the best forward for battle. If you read in Joel chapter 3, verse 9, proclaim this to the nations. He tells this guy, tell the nations, prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hoods into spears. So what he's saying is, get your mighty men, come. Get them, gather to come. Get them to come to this valley of Jehoshaphat. And get your farmers as well, the weak, those who are not even trained in battle. That's why it says here, beat your plowshares, plowshares, plowshares and pruning hooks are for farming, right? He says, turn them into swords now, turn them into weapons. Get everyone here, assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. And then he says, cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. That means God is also meeting them there with his own army. Now, he calls everyone to this battleground. He calls his army over there as well. And we are thinking, wow, he's going to have this massive battle. He's going to fight with, you know, with the surrounding nations and we know who's going to win, right? No. The odd thing is that there's no mention that God is going to battle them there. You look at this verse, Joel chapter 3, verse 12. Let the nations be awakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. He didn't go there to say, okay, at, at that place, valley of Jehoshaphat, I will go there to battle them. I will go there to fight them. No, he says, I will go there to sit and to judge. The position of sitting is crucial. It is a picture of rule and dominion. And he sits at the battlefront because that's his position, to rule and to reign. He has all authority and all power. When God takes the throne, everyone shall bow before Him. Everything, every living creature shall bow before Him. The battle is over. Why? Because the enemies, kings, gods, rulers, don't get to sit on this throne. Only our God can. Can you see? He is a sovereign judge. He has the final say. He takes his rightful seat. And the last proof that God is a sovereign judge is number three, he protects his people from oppression. In verse 16, it says this, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, in my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy. No aliens shall pass through her again. The Lord will roar from Zion. I imagine the movie, the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, the battle of Baruna when all hope is lost, right? When they are tired of fighting, when their arms are weak, when it seems the enemy comes in like a flood. Aslan comes dashing in and at a peak from the hilltop, he roars to announce his arrival. This majestic judge will roar from Zion. He will make it known that he is with his people. He will make it known that he is on his throne, ruling and reigning. He will make it known that he is a shelter for his people and he is their strength and no one shall invade them ever again. If you read the, throughout the book of Old Testament, especially in the book of Judges, God raised judges with one purpose, to deliver his people from oppression. 
In Judges chapter 2, verse 18, it says, When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. God not only has the final say, not only will take his rightful seat, but he also protects his people from harassment and oppression. Only one who is all-powerful, all with all authority, all supreme, has the ability to protect and defend. You get the picture now? God is our righteous judge. God is our sovereign judge. Now, you may be asking, well, Daryl, so what does it mean for me? Uh, this is all great. Yeah, but what does it mean? Well, let me put it into application for us this morning. Because God is our righteous and sovereign judge, because we know God delivers the payback, we can trust in Him. We can trust in His judgment. We can present our case to Him. Think about it. For some of us, we have been wrongly accused. We have, been, we have had conflicts with one another. We have had conflicts with our family, with our friends. And we held a grudge. We held a sense of unforgiveness and bitterness against someone. It could have been a betrayal of trust. It could have been a misunderstanding. It could have been something done to you that you will never ever forgive that person for. And then maybe you have spent your day scheming, planning, and find ways and means to deliver the payback. You want to make them feel the pain of what they did to us. It may have been a broken relationship, a broken marriage that did not go as well. And you think that by retaliating, you think that by taking things into your own hands will make you feel better. But this morning, I want to tell you that you have a righteous and sovereign judge. He sees, he feels your pain. It says here, he protects his people. And so there are three responses to deal with this unforgiveness and bitterness. The first is this, surrender your situation to God. Surrender it. Surrender. Tell, come before God and say, God, this is, this is it. I, I can't deal with this. I, I can't. Like, I, I quarrel with my wife or I quarrel with my brother or, I, you know, I, I quarrel with a friend and, and now we are no longer on talking terms. I can't. A lot of us stop there. We only tell God that. But we don't release the pain to God, which is point number two. We need to release that pain. It is painful. It is painful to hold that grudge all the time. It is painful to go through what you've gone through, but you need to release that pain to God. You need to release your emotions to God. And number three, you let God work. You let God work. I'll share my story so we can close. Eunice and my family started a church planting journey in 2013. Of course, we have um, closed that uh, already, but we began with 12 people. Two couples were the closest to us and supported the work. We, my close friend who lives down the street is one of them with his wife and my brother and his wife. In one year, we grew from 12 to 70 people. We were thrilled. But in the following years, the numbers began to dwindle. People started to leave the church plant. Being a young pastor then, I did not know what I did wrong. In fact, I don't recall, in fact, I don't recall doing anything wrong uh, or anything that would cause this departure. But as the people left, uh, my brother and wife came up to me one day 
and told me that they do not feel that the church will succeed and grow. They said that even if they replace me as a lead pastor and get another one, the church will not grow. It's not, they'll say things, it's not even about you, Daryl. You know how is it like, right, when they say, no, it's not you, it's something else. <laughs> it's not you, it's me. <laughs> but yeah, they said, that's, it's not even about you, Daryl. Overall, we don't think this will work. I was gutted. It was like indirectly saying that my leadership was not great in a nice way. And that was what they said and they left. Then the lowest point of my ministry was when my closest friend and his wife questioned my work, my time spent, wanting me to put myself on a performance plan and in no uncertain terms to show results or else they will leave. It was painful to hear those words from my closest friend, those words of distrust. I mean, I worked as hard as I could as a young, as a young pastor with a young family in tow and my youngest boy was just a newborn then. No one asked me how I felt. No one asked me if I needed support. And I felt abandoned and very bitter. This was three years into the church plant. They left. The next three years, I refused to see my brother and sister-in-law. Even my parents tried to reconcile us and intervene. I refused. In the Chinese tradition, we have a, what we call in Chinese New Year a reunion dinner, similar to a Thanksgiving. And that's where we, the family gathers and enjoy each other's company and have a reunion, reunion dinner together. Eunice asked me, hey, do you want to get your brother over? I said, no. I refused to see them. I was very, very bitter. Even my close friend and his wife, they actually live three blocks down or just the next street. They were my neighbours. And I said, if I bump into them, I had a mental strategy in my mind. If I bump into them, I wouldn't want to say a single word to them. I'll literally treat them as strangers, as if they don't exist in my life anymore. It was one day when we were in Sydney on holiday. God spoke to me. And I felt judged by God. Because God made me realise that I was in the wrong too. I was an immature leader. And I know it was this bitterness and unforgiveness that I held for so long on the inside that prevented me from experiencing God's presence. This year we are on the word presence. And that night in Sydney, I cried. It was then that I surrendered my pain. I presented my case to God, my righteous and sovereign judge. It was in that moment that I released all my bitterness and pain to Him. And God said this quietly in my heart. He said this. He said, Daryl, I want you to write a letter asking them for forgiveness. And I did. I wrote that letter down. When I returned to Perth, I posted it out. And I asked for forgiveness stating that I was an immature leader. Two days later, my brother and sister-in-law texted back to me and they apologised for their immaturity as well and forgave me. That year, we reconciled. My friend, my closest friend, we just had a dinner, I think, about two, two three months ago. Never heard from them since the letter, but we had a dinner. It was great. You see, the thing is this. God is not against the other person who wronged you. God is against the sin of bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts. That's His true enemy. 
But the wonderful thing here is that God's judgment and payback towards unforgiveness and bitterness is in the form of reconciliation and forgiveness. That's his payback. You know what? He looks at the face of bitterness and unforgiveness. He says, you know, I'm going to retaliate back in your own head. I'm going to show you what reconciliation looks like. I'm going to show you what peace, making peace looks like. I'm going to show you what forgiveness looks like. And it's beautiful. This morning, wherever you are, I want you to know to, that you can do these three simple things. Surrender your situation to God. Release your pain to God. And let God work because He is your righteous and your sovereign judge. Wherever you are this morning, if you're in your living room, if you're in a car, I know I may have touched some nerve points in your life this morning. I may have said some things that may have caused certain emotions and memories to stir up. But if I've done that, don't ignore that. God is speaking to you in your heart right now. He's dealing with your bitterness and unforgiveness. The thing about bitterness and unforgiveness is that you imagine a hot potato and you're holding on to it. That is bitterness and unforgiveness. The one that is truly hurt is not the person. The other person is not holding the hot potato. You are. And that is in itself a sin. And God wants you to deal with that. God wants you to stand before Him as He is the judge and He wants you to release that. This morning, if that is you, wherever you are, I want you to release that this morning. I want to be able to pray with you and ask that God will be able to release that from you this morning. So I want us to close our eyes wherever we are and bow our heads. And I want us to lift up our hands. If that is you this morning, you have, you have been accused, you have been wrongly judged. Have, sure, some things have been said you know, against you. Sure, you may have felt the pain, you may have felt the bitterness and you, you, have, you, know, you, you have not spoken to this person for a long time because you don't want to deal with this and, or you maybe have been scheming and ways to make them hurt and to just deliver your payback. But that's not how God wants it to be. He's a righteous and sovereign judge. Vengeance is His, says the Lord, not yours. So this morning, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for those of you who are feeling this way. Father, we just want to pray for those who you see their hands, wherever they are in their living hall, in the car, walking. You know the pain that they go through. You know the situation that they have gone through. You know the conflicts that they have had. You know how they're feeling. They may be feeling misjudged, accused. They may have been hurt and they're holding on to bitterness. They're holding on to unforgiveness. This morning, you see their hands. They're releasing it to you. They're presenting the case before you and they say release the pain as well. And we want to let you work. Let you judge righteously sovereignly to bring about restoration to bring about reconciliation to bring about forgiveness we ask all this in jesus mighty name amen and amen i hope you've been blessed this morning and if that is you 
and if there's a story of reconciliation, send it through as a testimony. We would love to share the joys with you. We would love to share how this has actually been applied in your life. So have a great, wonderful weekend and a great week ahead. And remember, next Sunday, we are not going to meet in Littleville. We're going to have a church service at a campsite. And for more information on where that is, it's in Swan Valley, but the exact address, please reach out to your um, uh, community group leaders or give the church office a call and I'm sure they'll provide you that information. Be blessed. Have a great week ahead and I'll see you next weekend.